Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Rachel Newman is the founding partner at Flying Fox Ventures, but she's so much more than that. In fact, it feels like Rachel Newman is at the very epicentre of the Australian startup ecosystem, and she's been instrumental in bringing some of the secrets of Silicon Valley success to our shores to enable both Australian companies and investors to thrive. She was the managing director of Eventbrite in Australia, growing the tech business in our region, having previously been a consultant at Bain & Company in Silicon Valley and throughout Australia, advising technology, private equity, consumer products and retail businesses. Her love of early stage companies was evident in her choice to head up startups in Australia and New Zealand for Amazon Web Services, taking responsibility for driving both quantity and quality of startups in our region. Along the way, Rachel became an invaluable strategic advisor and investor and a partner in Startmate, Australia's most ambitious accelerator. She's passionate about helping companies to scale and increase their impact through differentiated customer experience and new product development. Rachel also works tirelessly to create the right policy environment that's conducive to a thriving sector and served as the chair of the board for Startup Oz, Australia's national startup advocacy and lobby group, with a federal ministerial appointment in distributing commercialisation and acceleration funding on behalf of the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science. Educated in the United States with undergraduate degrees from Stanford and two master's degrees from Columbia University, Rachel has bounced between Australia and the US for the last 10 years, but now proudly calls Melbourne home alongside her partner, and two gorgeous children. Rachel, I've been so looking forward to this podcast. Thanks for joining us all the way from Silicon Valley. Thanks so much for having me, Catherine. One of the reasons I've been so looking forward to this podcast is I listened to the interview that you did with Madeline Grummet on her podcast, the Human Cogs podcast, and I just was blown away at A, the amazing variety in your backstory, but also just your willingness to be candid. One of the questions I loved was what you really need to know about Rachel Newman is that she comes from New York. (laughs) How has that amazing city shaped who you are? Um, And Catherine, I'll say I'm a little bit nervous. I very rarely return to the scene of the crime for my recordings or my interviews. And Human Cogs is one of those that I think I need to listen to just because it was so raw and so honest and I'm kind of scared to. The one call I've gotten so far far is kind of like the last person that you would expect or want to say they've just listened to the podcast where you've thrown wide open your heart. And that is my mother-in-law. But she called me on the weekend and said that she listened to it. So now I thought, shoot, I really do need to listen to this. Um, But let's go back to New York. Yes, I'm a New Yorker born and bred and lived there until I was 18. And then like 
many Americans, we go pretty far away for university. So I popped over to California and I did my undergrad at Stanford. And so it's funny, I'm kind of this hybrid where I have this real New York toughness. And then I think the optimism and the wonder that comes from having lived my kind of educational and formative young professional lives on the West Coast. So I think it's a good balance. Tough as nails, but prefer to be optimistic and keep my elbows to myself. It seems like you're one of those people that are multifaceted, good at pretty much everything you try. So you're on a sports scholarship to Stanford. Lacrosse is your sport. Tell us a bit about your career as an athlete. Yeah, um, lacrosse was my sport. Let's make sure we say that I'm very much a washed up athlete at this point in my life. Very flattering for you to say that I'm good at everything. That's not the case. Um, and in fact, as I've gotten older, I've it's been made abundantly clear to me that I'm not good at many things, but the things I am good at, I'm pretty good at. So I'm okay with that. Let's just be kind of world-class at a few things and then just admit that we're rubbish at everything else. And when people need that everything else, you just be a great connector and point them to those resources. So yes, lacrosse was my sport. I, I played sport all throughout my childhood. I grew up with three brothers and all of us went to school playing sport. Lacrosse was the sport that kind of got all of us. And so for me, I actually was like a real nerd at school. I was highly academic and put a lot of pressure on myself to perform academically, but also loved it. And when I was 14, as soon as I got my working papers, I worked in a genetics laboratory that was founded by Dr. Watson of Watson and Crick. So I was a real nerd. And so then I think the sports came as a release. And it was a way for me to get out of my head and into my body, but also reflect the things that I kind of did in the classroom, right? Like I could be on a team, I could, you know, anticipate and be strategic. So it's like all of these book skills I had, but a chance to just turn the brain off and then trusted my body. And I actually think that being an athlete, I mean, it gave me so many gifts. And that's why I'm such a proponent of youth sport and sport in general. And there are lots of things that I do to make sure, especially women's sport is very prominent today. But I think that one of the things that sport gave me is this ability to trust myself without having sometimes all the facts and all the data. So in sport, you have to sometimes make decisions really quickly and you have to just react and you don't always get to see the whole field. You don't always get to know, well, if I do this, what will happen? You can't, you know, you, you don't know every, all the facts. And so you have to kind of surrender, trust, literally take a punt and then just be prepared to react to whatever is the consequence of that decision. And I think, you know, if we jump kind of to what I'm doing now with early stage investing, there's so much ahead of me that I have no idea. I have no idea how these industries are going to play out. I don't know how these founders and these teams are going to play out. Now, having this trust that I can make decisions and not necessarily that, the, that they'll be right, but I'll know how to react if they don't go as planned. I think I got on the field. I'm fascinated by the idea of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation and having been a sports person and achieved academic excellence, how much of that was motivated by extrinsic motivation and has that changed over time? Yeah. Listen, I think that there's a lot of extrinsic motivators in the world of sport and, you know, high performing academics that are dangled right in front of you. They literally are trophies, right? It's like gold pieces dangled in front of you. It's like, it couldn't be any more obvious, but I think that intrinsically 
I had to be motivated to even care or want those things. And I think that competitiveness inside you is a necessary key ingredient or else that thing isn't as shiny and it's not worth the absolute physical pain that you put yourself through in order to achieve it. So I think that you really do need a balance. The real question is if it was pure intrinsic motivation, if there was no score, if there was no trophy, if there was no scholarship to Stanford, would I still have pushed myself through that pain? I probably don't think so. But likewise, if I didn't have that internal motivation, I don't think the external noise would have been enough. You asked how that's changed over time. And, you know, I mentioned this a little bit in that other podcast, but I really am getting to a place where so much of my motivation comes inward and my actions come from more of a knowing and a trusting rather than a how will I be perceived or how will I be judged. It's also the the group of people that I fear judgment from aren't the same. So they used to be authority figures or my peers, and now it's my kids. And so I, I more am worried about how will they see me in their eyes? Um, am I being a good role model? Am I modeling the humanness that I want them to be free to live in their lives? And so I'm less worried about, you know, how will so-and-so think of me and, you know, what will my parents think? So the audience has shifted, that's for sure. And it seems like you've been able to navigate your own path. It sort of sometimes feels like you've got so many interests. You're like a kid in a candy store. You want to do this and that and this and, you know, there's so many things you want to do. Is that how you've sort of felt as you've gone from one stepping stone to the next in in what you've chosen to do? Yeah. So I actually, I have always been very we'll call it interdisciplinary in my interests and in my approach, I've always had very nonlinear paths. But it's funny because looking back now, I can celebrate that and I can say like, look how cool that I, you know, never followed some, you know, linear preset path. I will admit that it actually caused a lot of stress and feelings of like, of like not belonging or that I'm doing things wrong for much of my life. And I used to think that either um, I was weird or I was a failure or I was, you know, too impatient or too deviant. I used to get really stressed out. And I remember, especially in those first few years out of Stanford, that's where people tend to start their career in a little bit more traditional places, management consultants or banks or law school or med school. And that's when I looked around and I started to compare myself to my peers, which is, you know, as we know, like the worst thing you can do and the root of all unhappiness. And I started to ask myself, like, what the hell am I doing? Now, I'll tell you what I was doing. I worked in a venture fund that invests in public education. And then I was working in a refugee camp in Thailand. Like I was doing really cool stuff, but I felt really unmoored and like I didn't have a path. And so one, I think the beauty of my circuitous route to get here is something that I appreciate very deeply in hindsight, not in the moment. But I remember a few years out of school, one of my good friends from Stanford had said to me, Rachel, have you ever picked up the biography or the autobiography of someone you really admire? And you open up the first page and they say, I knew exactly what I wanted to do when I was four. And this is the exact path. They're like, no, that's never the person you admire. So what you're doing right now is you're writing the middle chapters. And I felt, I still remember that conversation so clearly. And so whenever I feel like, what the hell am I doing? You know, where am I going? Where am I taking this? Like, to what end is this? Is I just remind myself I'm writing the middle chapters. And I never was 
a person who did something as a means to an end. I very much am, what am I learning right now? What is the impact I'm having right now? Who am I working with? So it's a little, I don't know if that's like hedonist or it's, it's very in, it's very much in the moment. And, and now I can celebrate that. But it's funny when people come up and like they ask me for career advice and I'm like, I'm the wrong person to ask for career advice. I just kind of say yes to whatever feels or sounds good at the time. And it's always worked out. And then when it doesn't, I think like what I said on the sports field, you figure out how to make it right. I've had plenty of mistakes. I've had plenty of things I've said yes to. And then I'm like, ooh, I don't really want to do that. How do I extricate myself from that. And I think what I realize is that most things in our lives, you know, Jeff Bezos talks about one-way doors and two-way doors. Most of our decisions in our lives are two-way doors, which means you can go through it. And if it's not right, if it doesn't feel right, if it isn't the learning that you need, the impact you want, and the people you want to learn from and surround yourself by, you can usually slowly back up. And there might be a cost, right? You might lose some time or some money or some momentum. You might lose some relationships. But, you know, staying in that place that isn't right for you, I think, is is my version of hell. So I've always taken the approach of just say yes. And my dad always says to me, Rachel, everything can be undone but face tattoos and children. So if you take the advice from Peter Newman, just, you know, most things are two-way doors. Well, and I always have liked that Steve Jobs quote, you can't join the dots in advance. And it's only with hindsight, you sort of realise you've ended up where you should be. I think the sort of education that you seem to get in some of the the, U, the good US institutions where you're sort of forced to cover a lot of breadth seems to be an advantage. It seemed like you doubled down on that because you did two master's degrees at the same time when you went to Columbia. Yeah, but I, and I, I just want to go back. I think that the, listen, this podcast isn't for me to critique the Australian tertiary education system, but I do think being in a liberal arts education um, like we get in most places in the U.S. has been the single most valuable thing in my cognitive, spiritual, and imaginative development, my creative development. So at Stanford, they don't even let you declare a major until your third year, until you're a junior. So that's two whole years where you are forced to take a whole cornucopia of courses. And I took everything from the linguistics of hip hop culture and the goddesses of like Hinduism and Japanese language and poetry and computer science and sociology. You know, we're forced to take this distribution of classes. And so one, it allowed, it gave me time to figure out like, actually what turns me on? You know, I had done science my entire life up until Stanford and look, I'm, I'm not a scientist. It turns out, you know, I, I think like a scientist, I'm very hypothesis driven. I love data, but actually I care more. And even with technology, I care more about the human interaction with science, the human interaction with technology, how technology influences societal fabric. And so I wouldn't have known that. If, you know, in Australia, it's wound back even further. You know, my partner basically had to know she wanted to be a doctor before she was 16 so she could take the classes to get into med school. Now, she's actually one of the brave ones. She's an exec at Uber now. She's not a doctor, but most people kind of pick their path when they're 16. I just think it's way too early. You will not have had the experiences to just figure out what makes you come alive. So I value that Stanford gave me the opportunity to try things so that I knew what I wanted to focus on. 
But then all of those other courses that I realized weren't for me, those weren't lost. That all helped me to, you know, pattern detect or draw from lots of diverse sets of experiences. And again, just be kind of interdisciplinary in my thinking and, and be a little less linear. And if I fast forward to how I think that plays out now, you know, I'm a very early stage investor, which means a lot of the things that I am backing don't exist today, or they're predicated on a belief that something in the future is going to be fundamentally different. Either this technology will be different, human behavior will be different, regulations will be different. And the only way you can kind of get comfortable with so much ambiguity is if you have the mental flexibility to be able to think in, in multi-dimensions. And I do believe it was an interdisciplinary liberal arts education that gave my brain a lot of practice with that. So then you know, had some work experience and then you sort of doubled down on that brain expanding experience. And I think it's incredible you did two master's degrees at the same time. Can you just tell us what your thinking was in choosing to do that? Yeah. The intention with which I went into Columbia was very different from when I came out, which is also why man plans and God laughs. Like that's another reason why I, I'm reticent to give career advice. Cause like, you know, life is this really big thing that throws off your best laid plans. So I mentioned that I had been working in refugee camps in along the Thai Burmese border. And I was working with the UN High Commission for Refugees and I was designing a system of health clinics, like this concept that I had learned while investing in school systems through New Schools Venture Fund. So here I was investing in schools. I looked at the charter school movement in the US and there was this organizational structure called the CMO, the Charter Management Organization. And the way that that was set up, I thought when I was in the refugee camps that we can apply that same structure and replicate it. So that's another way where like you see something in education and you think about applying it to healthcare in refugee settings. But anyway, I was there and I realized, you know, I was very passionate about global health, but I was quite frustrated with I think sometimes the lack of like commercial rigor or the lack of um, just some of the, the things we see in well-oiled companies that I would love to see applied into these humanitarian settings. So I said, I'm going to go get my master's in public health because when I come back, I need to like be in charge of the UN, not like have a degree. Like I want to be in charge of this whole thing. I just need to start from the top. I said, it's okay. What do you need to like run the whole show. So I thought a master's in public health would be good. And then I said, why don't I get an MBA? Because that feels like I can bring that business toolkit and some of that rigor into this space. And so that I actually went to Columbia to get my MPH, but I thought an MBA would be a really important skill set for me to, quite frankly, like leapfrog a bunch of levels so that I could have impact from the start and not just be on the ground in the field. And so, yeah, I'm like a bit insane. I wouldn't recommend concurrently getting two masters at Columbia, these programs aren't like joint programs. Like I literally went to health school at night and business school during the day. And sometimes, you know, was running between campuses. It was like not an amazingly fun. I know, I know a lot of people who had a lot more fun in business school than I did, but it was very efficient. And then when I graduated, there were two things that had happened. So first of all, when you graduate with two degrees from an Ivy League school in the United States, you have about $250,000 in debt. And I also found myself really with a strong affinity to my public health friends in their desire to have an impact on the world and the way in which they thought about change. But I had a very strong connection to my friends in business school who had the skills, the rigor, and the systems to actually make things happen. 
And so I thought this whole business thing could actually be used as a force for good if harnessed correctly. As much as I love the public health world, again, I didn't want to get stuck in the inefficiencies of it. And I want to make sure I had impact. And I had this massive debt hanging over my head. So I decided to go into management consulting, thinking, you know, management consulting is to business school what like residency is to med school. And I thought that would just, again, give me a few years of solid training, give me a ton of tricks in my toolkit and allow me to see lots of different companies. Because I think I love distribution, right? I talked about at Stanford, I wanted lots of different classes and I wanted to try lots of little things. And they say consulting is great because you get to work with many different companies over your time as a consultant, try lots of little things, but also start to see what can I pattern detect? What can I learn from one company and bring it to another how can I just maximize my learning in a short period of time? That's one of those, you know, sliding door moments where I think going into Columbia, I expected like Paul Farmer, I'd be, you know, out in the field. I, my expertise at, at, in public health is diarrheal diseases, waterborne infectious diseases. And, you know, I very well could be in Africa studying trachunculiasis. And instead I was wearing a suit and, you know, going into the offices of some of Australia's largest companies and helping them be better. So yeah, it's funny how those things happen. You've just mentioned that obviously you graduated from Columbia, but you ended up working in Australia. What brought you to Australia? Oh, it's always love, isn't it? Yeah. When I was at Columbia, I met my partner, now wife, um, at a BCG recruiting dinner. So very dorky, meet cute. But it was one of those things where, you know, the firm brings all of the recruits to dinner and you're meant to suck up to the senior leader of the company there. And like, he's, it's always like an old white dude. And you're always there, like asking him questions and pretending to be interested in his answers. And instead, we had this like hardcore crush thing happening across the table. And um, it was one of those things like the dinner ended and we didn't get off the table. And then like the restaurant closed and they're like, can you like leave? Anyway, she was Australian. And we graduated in 2009. It was the height of the global financial crisis. And all the consulting firms first asked us to all take a few months off. They said, here's some money, go travel the world, come back in three months when we have jobs for you, which was awesome. So we did, we traveled the world. We went to India and Cuba and Europe and we were all over the place. And then when it was time to work again, I looked at the kinds of projects that are happening in the US and it was like cost cutting and shutting down factories and it was all about rationalization. And in Australia, we were still digging things out of the earth and the economy is still booming. And so I said, hey, why don't I transfer my offer to Australia, see what this whole relationship thing is all about. And you know, it's one of those things you like blink and all of a sudden I like have a house and a kid and I'm Australian. So uh, one of the best things to happen because I feel unbelievably lucky that I get to call Australia home, that I get to continue my career there and I get to raise my family in Australia. And you're both pretty driven, smart people. How have you managed that sort of juggle of place and time and kids and all all of those sort of things that stretch a relationship when you've got things you want to invest in at home, but things you want to invest in out in the world? Yeah, I I wish I could say that we did it we always do it well. But there are times where it's running like a well-oiled machine. There are times where it's like within an inch of its life, a well-oiled machine, but if like one little cog breaks, the machine blows up. And then there are times when it's just an absolute mess and we are just living day to day to survive. Because you mentioned there are a few dimensions here. It's how do you have a career and a family life that you will both want, but then how do you have two working parents 
who have very demanding careers. And so we've had to take turns. There have been times where we have said, okay, you really want this opportunity. This is your turn. And the next couple of years, when forced to make decisions, I have to make it through the lens of it is your turn right now. And then sometimes it's flipped. Sometimes we've said that and then a great opportunity comes and we like blow the whole thing up. So we're not amazing and disciplined at it. But I think both my wife, Jody and I, as I had said earlier, we both say yes a lot to great opportunities. And we think that most things can be undone. And so, I mean, I'm speaking to you from the US right now. And that's because literally, I think 10 days before we got on the plane to come here, Jody's company, Uber in San Francisco said, hey, we would really like for you to be here. We said, hey, should we just put one of those petitions into the government? We got a yes. And then, you know, literally 10 days later, we live in the US, our kids are in school and, you know, we're here for a few months. So I think both of us have the kind of get up and go spirit. And then we also believe that if it is a total disaster, we'll figure out how to undo it. And so we give each other a lot of permission to just have a crack and then say, you know what, like we can't quite make the math work on paper on how we're going to do this. Let's just freaking do it. And we'll either figure out how to make it work or we'll figure out how to peel it back. But let's start with a yes. Like we never start with a no because we anticipate something might be hard. We'll always give it a crack and then fix it or quit it if it is too hard. I reckon you must be raising the most incredible kids in terms of their resilience, not be focused on, you know, having to be rooted somewhere. You know, they seem to be able to start new schools and adapt to new ways of doing things. Has that been sort of part of the plan or is that just a happy byproduct? I think that's a happy, I think we're just lucky because I I think that little people are born with their very own constitutions and we can try our best to create certain environmental factors and hope that they align to them. Our two children, they are 10 and 6, almost 7 right now. They are incredibly different humans, but we're very lucky in that up until this point, both of them have had both a willingness and an ability to change and adapt. And this last two years, we have obviously had COVID, which required lots of adaptation. We were in the middle of last year, middle of 2020. Remember that short window where Melbourne opened and you could travel? We went up to Byron Bay for holiday and then the door slammed shut. And we actually stayed in Byron and we just lived there for the rest of the year. The kids went to school there. Then we came back to Melbourne. And then with all those mini lucky D's, we just kept hitting the road. So we went up to the Daintree and we just kind of like, just stayed one step ahead of the virus. And we had a car with two folding tables, the kids' school bags and their backpacks and headphones. And wherever we were, we just popped open the tables. They sat down and had school. So I think that one of two things, Catherine, either they are incredibly resilient and super up for the adventure, or we're going to have some pretty hefty bills with the shrink in a few years. <laughs> but as of right now, they seem to be intact. They seem to be having fun. I mean, we, we sat them down when the government approved our exemption request, our travel exemption. And we said, hey, how do you guys feel about going to America? And they're like, yay. And I was like, but you're going to like go to a new school. And after a few months, you're going to leave that school. And they're like, let's do it. And They've been amazing. Like my son in the second week came home. He's like, I'm running for student council. 
I'm like, dude, we're only here for three months. He's like, that's okay. That's enough time to make a change. And I was like, this is my kid. This is my kid. He didn't win. But I just love that he, again, was like willing to have a crack and kind of wherever you are, make the best of it. I'd love to say that we're teaching our kids, but I'll tell you these last couple of you know, these two years, these kids have been the teachers. I've learned so much about their ability to take things in stride. Yeah, they're just phenomenal. So transitioning to your life with startups, that it seemed like that was sort of a natural progression from where you had been. Can you tell us how that sort of evolved, that love of helping businesses grow? Yeah, and I'll tell you, I've told this story before, but I'll I'll tell just the quick version. So while I was at Stanford, I was there from 99 to 2003. So what happened in that period was the incredible startup bubble and then the big bubble bursting. So I had the front row seat of watching half of my friends and classmates actually leave school, start companies, become, you know, millionaires on paper, and then half of them like come back two years later with their tail between their legs. Many of them have had more cracks and they have been incredible founders with great companies since then. But I got hooked at that time. Most people would watch the massacre of the bubble burst and think, shit, I'll never touch that. And I just said, this is the fast paced environment that I want to work in where like ideas and meritocratic ideas have the opportunity to just like be started and people back wild ambition. And there are people who can squint their eyes and see a future that's different than the one exists. And then someone is going to throw them a shit ton of money to just make it happen. Like that was addicting. And so that's very much kind of in the DNA. So even though I ended up in refugee camps and then places like Bain, I still had like this very, this affinity for, and this kind of entrepreneurial spirit that I wanted to be a part of. You know, I, I think that I cut my teeth as an operator when Bain actually sent me back to San Francisco to do some tech work here for some of our big tech clients with the idea that I'd come back to Australia and have expertise um, and they could start to build out their tech practice in Australia. And instead, it's like very easy to get poached and wooed by a great uh, startup. So I met the founders of Eventbrite, Kevin and Julia Hartz, and I went into the office and, you know, people were playing ping pong and drinking kombucha. And I was like, yes, this. Uh, And at the time, I didn't know how to start up, but I knew how to do, again, like one thing really, really well that I was doing for Bain, which was customer experience strategy and figuring out how to loop what customers really want and need, translate that into product and make sure that that loop is kind of continuous. And so I did that at Eventbrite. I joined Eventbrite at a very high growth period of the company's existence. I was part of that high growth. I hired over 80, probably a couple hundred people actually between customer support. And then I started a new office in Nashville. I launched that office and then they asked me to launch Australia as well. I had said, I just came from Australia. They're like, that's the point. Get back on the plane, which again was, it was not the plan. We had only been in America for 14 months at that time. My partner had started with an incredible company called Thumbtack, which is now, you know, thousands of people, $3 billion valuation. She started as employee 20, but we said, wow, like here's an opportunity for you to launch Australia. Let's give it a go. And actually for that time, we lived apart and traveled. I also was seven months pregnant when I took the MD role. So if if ever there were some examples that we are yes people, I think that's a good one. But I just, again, like once you operate in that environment where you have so much freedom to create, where you... I had felt so alive because I it was, I was in like a yes environment. 
I was in a place where I could gather insights for customers and build things to make their lives better. I was in a place where everyone was energized and motivated and wanted to create something great for the first time. And I'm addicted to that. And so now what I do as an investor is I find people who are doing their life's work and I do everything I can to enable them to do that. And, you know, that's in the form of capital. It's in the form of any sort of assistance or help that I can give. But why I back startups is like, yes, I believe that startups are the future of Australia. Yes, I believe we need an economy of the future and I want my kids to inherit and build that. Yes, I believe that there's going to be tremendous economic value that will be created for me and my investors. But like, really, the thing that gets me out of bed every day is that I'm enabling 30 plus companies worth of founders to get out of bed and do what they are meant to do every day. And there's no greater privilege than that. I've heard you say that there's sort of learnings from working in refugee camps to, you know, working with startups. What's the connection? Oh, God. Well, it's scrappy, right? (laughs) So first of all, my wife used to be an emergency doctor before she became a startup person. And so we actually have very similar learnings from being in refugee settings, being in emergency rooms. And that is like, first stop the bleeding, right? So like there, well, one, it's keep your cool. There will always be these disasters. And I think that we keep our cool also because we have been in some situations where it's life and death. We know that in startups, it's usually not real life and death. It might feel like existential life and death, but once you know what that feels like, and then you're just in an office setting, you're like, okay, cool. No one is going to die today. We can take it down one notch. So one, being able to have perspective to being able to act with urgency. So I think we can make very quick decisions. One, because we've been in high pressure situations where you have to make decisions quickly. But again, what I said before is most decisions, if you make the wrong one, you can just figure out how to fix it. And what you do also both in like emergency, in startups, in refugee camp is you make the smallest decision you can. You don't make the biggest, right? You make the smallest single decision that you can so that if it is wrong, you can course correct with a very small decision that follows. So people think it's like these big sweeping decisions. It's tiny little micro movements stacked on top of each other that makes the line. So if you see this like parabolic curve, it's actually these very tiny little decisions. And then that way also in their little blips, they get blurred into the line, but actually there are these tiny. So everything is chunk it down to very small decisions and make be good at making lots and lots and lots of small decisions every day. And that also, like, it's just, it's like muscle memory. It just builds up this muscle for decision-making. You start to get better at it. You get faster at it. You get more confident. All companies that have failed, it's usually from some sort of paralysis around making a decision or they've waited too long or they've made a huge decision that's really hard to undo rather than making tiny little decisions. So if I think again to your question, it's like one, keep everything in perspective. Two, act quickly, stop the bleeding. Three, make lots of small decisions. And I don't want to say refugee settings are acceptable, but there are minimum viable solutions that you need to deploy. And then you build on top of that to make it better and make it better. And then you're, uh, if you think about some protracted refugee situations, it's actually quite astounding how long something that's like pretty scrappy can exist. <laughs> but the lesson is 
just get something, get a solution out there and then build on it over time, right? So like if you're in an acute refugee situation, you don't wait to build beautiful cinder block houses with perfectly laid foundations. You just, th- you, you get a structure in place and you create safety and then you figure out what is the longer term need for for these people. And I think that's the same thing with the solution. You get something out, you get customers to start using it, and then they will tell you, this is meeting my needs, this is not meeting my needs, and then you build accordingly. You modestly said at the beginning of our discussion that, you know, there's just a few things that you're world-class at. That sort of customer experience piece and that sales piece seems to be something that you're exceptionally good at. Can you talk a bit about how you think about those elements that help businesses be successful? You know, the more that I'm in tech, the more I know that this is all a human endeavor and everything. It is not about ones and zeros. It's about humans with wants and needs and the psychology around them. And so I think that what I've been able to cut through is I often talk to people about this. I have a talk that I give and it's this like translation factor and you can get good. You can, I, I think I'm, I'm naturally good. And then I've honed the skill through my, you know, 10,000 hours of practice, but you can get good at this. And that is when someone says, so we'll just take a tech example. So customer, I always say that um, customers make terrible product designers. So never let a, pro- a customer tell you what product to build. What you need to figure out is what does that customer need to achieve? What does she want? What are her hopes and dreams? What is she doing before, after, during? What are her emotional and psychological needs in using this product? And then you, the product designer, needs to develop the right product. But where companies fail is where they think that they get customer feedback and then they just build that thing. So if a customer says, I want a red button on the website, they're giving you feedback, I want a red button. They never actually want a red button. What they are telling you is, I'm lost. I don't know what to do right now. You are not giving me, we call it a CTA, a call to action. I don't know what to do or I can't find it. And I know I need to, I need to achieve something and you are making it hard for me to achieve it. So what they're saying is don't give me a red button. Cause like maybe red's not in your color scheme. Maybe buttons are, you know, hard for you to build into your code base, whatever. What they're saying is I'm lost and I need to do something and I need you to help me. And maybe actually, if you fix a a step two ahead in the process, you won't even need a red button because they are so clear on their path that they know exactly what to do. You know, I also say an example of someone says, I want a bottle of water. What they're actually saying is, I am thirsty. And maybe what they're saying is, I want to quench my thirst on the go. I want it to be something that I use over time. But if all of a sudden you realize that, you don't actually have to build a bottle of water. You can say, actually, how do I prevent thirst? Or maybe I'm going to make a bladder that goes on their back that they can continue to sip from. Maybe, you know, they don't need a a bottle of water, but what they really need is a mug because, you know, those things are hot. And so I think it's a really important process for you to do a translation and really decipher when a customer says X, what they're saying is I have pain, I have a need, and it is not being met. And so, you know, you can ask them why, why we we talk about the five whys. And some people are just better at getting in under the hood, but you have to peel the onion back and understand when they say, I want a bottle of water, what are they actually saying? And then 
build a beautiful solution for that problem. Don't build what they tell you to build. You also talk about the magic moment. Yeah. So the magic moment is the moment at which someone uses your product or service and all of a sudden that need is met. Something, some emotional, psychological, or physical need is met. And having experienced that moment means that they are like exponentially more likely to continue the thing you want them to do, whether that's they stay longer as a customer or they spend more money or they tell their friend, but it's, it's a wow moment. And so what's important is you identify what you think the wow moment is for your product or service, and then you get all the friction out of the way between them getting to that moment. So you try and speed up or ease, lubricate their journey to get to that moment. So I had done some work with Canva, for example, and they know that their magic moment is the minute someone publishes their first design. Because that's when you just feel like, wow, I can use this. This is easy. I feel accomplished. I did it. I can do this again. And so it's not the moment where you're first on the product and you're like, oh, look, there are a million templates and a million fonts and a million pictures. Like, actually, that could feel a little overwhelming. It's when they say, I can do it. I did it. So if we know if they publish one design, they're like 10 times more likely to come back again. Whereas if they come and just kind of kick the tires, you never know they're going to get there. So if that's the case for Canva, then they need to figure out how do they in any way possible get you to publish a design. And if like you're going there for something really complicated, how do they get you to maybe publish something super easy up front to give you that feeling of completion and that feeling of, I did it, get you to that magic moment. So yeah, I I just encourage all companies to think about what is that magic moment after which a customer will have a deep love and appreciation for the service and product you've just provided. And when you've identified that, think, how can I either move that up speed it up or ease it up so that we get as many customers to that moment as possible. I also like, I mean, you've talked about how you look for in the companies that you invest in for a sort of flywheel effect. I mean, flywheel is sort of overused, I think, at the moment, but I like that example from Eventbrite. Can you talk about how that sort of unlocked your understanding of how you can really speed up growth for a company? Yeah. And um, I am always looking for flywheels, even though it is like a very cliche term. And I think Amazon, you know, published their flywheel and everyone tries to replicate. Not all companies have flywheels in it. But when I do find a company with a flywheel, I get very excited because it just means that growth can be exponential with nonlinear investment, right? Which means there's a one-to-many relationship that exists. And so for every dollar you put in, you can get a hundred out. You know, what is a great example? Everyone understands COVID now. Everyone knows that if one person is sick and they infect five people and those five people can infect another 25, like everyone now understands exponential growth from disease, which is great because as a public health person, I finally now, I I see why I am drawn to flywheel businesses because I love high R values. So at Eventbrite, we discovered by accident that we had a flywheel. So originally Eventbrite was kind of like, how do we create a cash register and, and a pen and paper Excel replacement for organizers and just create a tool for an organizer to sell tickets? Um, and so we weren't a two-sided marketplace. We were just a tool for organizers. And what we found is for every organizer, so let's say they had a thousand people at a music, a local music festival, that something really interesting was happening. A thousand people bought tickets to go to this event 
And then a handful of those people would pop back up and would be organizers themselves. And we're like, what, what the heck is this? And that is because they used the tool and they saw how easy it is. And all of a sudden they thought, I can do this. And either they like didn't even think of themselves as an organizer ever before, or they themselves are organizer for something very different, but they're like, this tool could work for that. So an example would be, there's a music festival here in Tiburon, a thousand of us go, I go and I use the tool to get a ticket. And all of a sudden I'm like, this could really work. You know, I hold a pickling workshop for 14 people every fortnight, and this would be a great way to get people to buy tickets to my pickling workshop. So I'm what we called at Eventbrite an ATO, an attendee turned organizer. So they managed to convert me. And it's not just organic. So like in that example, I had the idea, but actually you can uh, incept that idea through great marketing and drip campaigns. But all of a sudden, I'm now an organizer. So I'm now a customer of, event, of the Eventbrite tool. And so then I have my pickling workshop and I have you know 28 people at my pickling workshop. And of those 28 people, a few of them will say, you know what, this will be really great for the school event that I host at my kid's school. And there the flywheel spins and spins and spins. And so once we realized that we had that mechanism where someone from one side of the marketplace could jump to the other, we figured out how to turbocharge that. And a huge part of our company's growth was based on that finding. So that's one of the things you look for in companies you want to invest in. What are some of the red flags that make you say, look, um, this is not a company for me? Yeah. I mean, we talk all the time about jockey versus horse. And I now have a portfolio of 44 companies, 30 within the Flying Fox banner, 14 that kind of predated that. When I look at the ones where I just think, look, Listen, I love every single company in my portfolio. They're all my babies, but every once in a while, you're just like, ooh, that that's a real uh, question mark. Let's see what's going to happen. It's always because I have fallen head over heels in love with the product space or the problem space, and I loved the initial product they showed me, and I looked past any misgivings I had about the founder or the founding team, and at the end of the day... If you force me to choose, Catherine, I, I should always put my money behind a superb founder solving a mediocre problem because that founder will find the outstanding problem if you give her enough time and enough runway and enough resources. But a shitty founder in a great problem space will just be a shitty founder with a shitty company. And so I think that has been a really important takeaway that I need to curb my enthusiasm for certain problem spaces. So like I have an example, I can't name names, but there's this one problem space. I met a founder and it's in the, it's in, I'll just say like in the rental space. So it's in the, I, I believe very much at this trend towards renting over owning. And I think that eventually it's going to infiltrate down to, you know, everything, clothes, equipment, et cetera. And so I think that there's a, a really interesting product play for retailers to be able to make a rentable business out of their retail business. So I believe in this space. I like squint my eyes. I see a future. It's very different from today. I met this founder. I met this company. And I'm like, yes, 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 yes. You are not the person to do it. And I just had to have discipline and not write a check because I just don't have any conviction that 
that founder and that team or lack of team is going to be the one to do it. And so I'm just patiently waiting. I, I shouldn't say I'm patient. I'm impatiently, actively seeking all companies in that space because I am going to write a check in this space, but I know that I need to be patient to find the right founder for it. I think that if you had asked me a year ago, I probably would have written, or two years ago, I would have written a check because I love the space. And I think that now what it says for me is red flag on founder cannot, like on rare circumstances, can you get past that? And so what that just means is, wow, how great. That, that was such a great meeting. I now know that I'm obsessed with the space. Now go pound the pavement and find another company that's working in that space. So I think that's, that's important. One of the other things I've heard you say, which I know there are varying views on this, is it's a turn off to you when you meet an early stage founder and they say, this is my idea and this is how I'm going to exit the company. Can you talk about why that is a concern for you? I mean, in the same way that I told you how I was going to go into Columbia and how I was going to exit and I was completely wrong, right? So if I had had a fixed mindset that this is how this, this journey is going to go, and this is how it's going to land, and this is how I'm going to exit. It just means that they don't have both a learning orientation, but also a realistic orientation, that there are so many factors out of their control. And this ride is going to have so many more twists and turns than they even know. If they're already thinking about the end-to-end journey and the exit, then I already know that they are going to miss the real opportunities that come their way because they are going to be following a Gantt chart instead of following their customers' wants, needs, following actually how the market changes and responds. So I think first and foremost, most investors like to say, oh, I don't want to talk about exits because I want you to be ambitious and think about enduring companies and we want VC back, you know, level returns. And so there's that whole financial reason, which is we want you thinking in decades. And I actually, I don't believe that as much, especially because our structure at Flying Fox, like it accommodates early exits really nicely. We don't need everything to be a Canva. Anything that returns, you know, a good multiple is that money comes straight to our investors. So we structurally are okay if companies exit early. So that's not the reason I am turned off by it. I'm just turned off by it because I think that it represents a type of mindset that is incompatible with the mindset we need for founders to be great, to be flexible, to be creative, to be opportunistic, and to be able to make these very quick adjustments when the market is telling them, you think that's good? Look at this. And we want everyone to have the flexibility in their DNA and in the company to be able to jump for the hundred rather than take the 20. So that's really the reason I I don't like it. It also just, I mean, it often signals that there's a financial motivation, which is fine. Like I'm, I'm all for, I mean, I'm an investor. I love money too. But again, the founders that I am backing are the founders that are waking up and kind of doing what they think is what they're put on this earth to do. And that very rarely is in the same sentence as, and I'll exit in six years at a 10x multiple. So yeah. Best advice you can give for founders who are thinking about raising capital? There has literally never been a better time to get money. I use this line over and over and it still hasn't aged, which is, I always say there's never been a better time to be a founder and there's never been a better time to be an investor. And every day it's getting more and more true. First of all, not all companies require external capital. Not all companies require venture 
style capital. And that's why it's so awesome that there are lots of different sources of funding out there, whether it's grant programs like the Boosting Female Founders program or the AC program. It's alternative financing like Tractor Ventures that I, disclaimer, am also an investor in, but love what those guys are doing around revenue-based financing. There are traditional business loans, right? So like not every, and and then there's of course bootstrapping. The best investor is your customer who pays you revenue to keep your company going. So not all companies need external capital. So that's asterisk one. Not all external capital needs to be venture style capital, but for those who want external venture capital, boy, is this a good time. There is so much damn money floating around and I'm in the US right now. I was joking with my friend at Defy VC over coffee the other day. We were talking about there's so much money, there's so much competition for great deals. We joke that due diligence happens at the first board meeting. So what this means is that this is a great time for you to access capital, but it's a great time for you to choose who is your right partner because you get to choose. I love, I love that the power dynamic has shifted. It's made my life a lot harder but it's made it more rewarding because I don't feel like I'm sitting here in the chair, you know, with my stack of dollars and looking down on all the people who are, you know, have their hand out. Like I had a call last night where we said, yes, on the phone. We're like, yes, yes, yes. And then I like quickly shifted gears and I was like, let me sell you myself. <laughs> it was so embarrassing, but I was unabashedly doing the hard pitch for me. But what that means is that founder who's a rock star, he's totally awesome. And he's 19, by the way. Um, but what's so great for him is, and we, we say this, like you get to pick exactly who you want on your team. And so I know this isn't for everyone, but right now it is more the case than it was six months ago, 12 months ago, 18 months ago, you get to pick your team. That's a great opportunity and a great responsibility. I hope that folks are out there Feel free to reach out to me if you're looking for capital, see if it's the right mix. But it just means that we all get to find better matches. It's a little bit like dating. Like all of a sudden the dating pool, you know, is filled with hot eligible bachelors and bachelorettes. We get to, you know, we don't have to settle as much for some chump with a checkbook. So I just encourage people get out there and fundraise right now because it is hot, hot, hot. Valuations are up. The power is with the founders. If you are working on a great problem and are building a great team, then you have a lot of power to, to pick your partners. Well, Rachel, it's been fabulous to spend time with you. And I think one of the reasons that the Australian startup sector is not full of chumps with checkbooks is because of all of the work you've done in cultivating a really vibrant community here in Australia. So I feel very grateful for all of the investment that you've made over time. Thank you so much, Catherine. And back to you as well. You are a real shining star in the in the ecosystem. So it's so great to chat with you today. And thanks so much for taking the time. Awesome. See you soon. Take care. Bye, guys. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs. Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders. Access 
to an online education platform and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.